On JPAM's Closer Look, we will be talking to leading authors published in the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management on timely topics such as healthcare, education, immigration reform, and economics. Hi, I'm very excited to talk to today's guest, Dr. Robin Cox, who's an assistant professor at the USC Suzanne Dvorak Peck School of Social Work. She is a PhD economist, having earned her doctorate from Georgia State University. Thanks for making time for us, and welcome to JPAM's Closer Look podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited that you're able to be here today because we're going to talk about a really fascinating paper that you co authored with Dr. Jamian Cunningham, an economist at the University of Memphis. And the title of the paper we're talking about is Financing the War on Drugs, the Impact of Law Enforcement Grants on Racial Disparities in Drug Arrests. This article is forthcoming in JPAM, the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management. And in this paper, you study the impact of increases in federal funding to local police on a variety of outcomes, including drug arrests, crime, as well as the number of police officers on the streets, and how those impacts vary by race. So can you give us a quick summary uh, or overview of what you're studying here and, and what the takeaway results are? Right. So the basic premise of the study is to understand how federal intervention and local law enforcement through federal funding to police departments impacts the amount of police that are hired, arrest, and crime. The novelty of this paper, as you mentioned, is that we also investigate the impact of this program on racial disparities and arrest with the focus on drug arrests because the federal grant program under question, the Edward Byrne Memorial State and Law and Local local law enforcement assistance program was described as the major funder of the war on drugs. Okay, yeah. And we'll talk about the that specific policy that, that increased funding and did some other things besides uh, increasing funding as we really dig in here. But one of the things I want to start with is that in the introduction to your paper where you motivate the study, you note that almost one third of 23-year-olds have been arrested in the United States. And this struck me as high, and it seems like the U.S. is an outlier here. Is that right? Yeah. You know, this number shocks many people. You know, we also within the paper compare it to the figure in 1965, which was closer to about one fifth. Okay. And then when you look and disaggregate by race, it's been found that it's been estimated that up to 49% of black males have been arrested by age 23. So... You know, in this country, we've truly expanded the scope of our criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. More people are being arrested than previously. And our study tries to understand what role federal interventions play in this piece of the puzzle, especially since we know crime had been declining over this period. Right. And that question of, of crime declining highlights something I, I want to try to talk about, uh, especially for our listeners who are not experts in, in criminology or criminal justice. So when we say that the U.S. has more arrests than other countries, and also, as you mentioned, the arrest rate has been increasing over time, why is that happening? Like, one way to think about it is, well, there's more policing making more arrests, but the other way is that is, is that there's more crimes occurring that result in arrests. And it sounds like you think it might be the former. Is that right? 
Well, yeah, so that's part of the motivation for this paper. If we look over time again, we've seen, you know, crime has actually been falling over the period that we're investigating. Um, And Mm -hmm. there's been a lot of discussion about what has expanded the net of the criminal justice system. If we think about For example, just as an example, incarceration, the research points to the increases in incarceration, especially at the state level, to changes in public policy. So that means we have become more punitive as a nation and we've approached crime more punitively. So we've expanded the scope through which individuals are incarcerated. And then we've also For those crimes where individuals were incarcerated previously, they're serving much longer prison sentences. Now, over this period as well, since about the 1970s, the racial disparities in incarceration rates have that have really significantly increased as well. Now, historically, we have seen racial disparities in incarceration, but the rates have also increased over this time. And there's been some findings that have attributed this to increases to historical differences in arrest rates. And so again, that's part of why we want to look at federal programs in this particular paper, because we think that this is something that um, hasn't necessarily been looked at in detail when thinking about criminal justice reform and how do we get at the root causes to this issue. Right. And one of the underlying factors here is that policing is expensive and the federal policy that you're studying, among other things, provided grant money to local police agencies. The policy is called the Edward Byrne Memorial State and Local Law Enforcement Assistance Program. And we said this is giving money uh, via grants to local police agencies. Who was Edward Byrne and what was the policy's main goal, main objective? Right. So so Edward Byrne was a police officer that was slain while watching a witness on a drug case. And so the 1988 amendment to the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1988 actually renamed the grant program after Edward Byrne in honor of the fact that he was killed while watching a witness in a drug case. Okay. So the policy we know gave uh, grants to local police agencies. What was the main motivation for this federal intervention? And what else did the policy seek to do, perhaps uh, over and above giving out uh, money? Right. So the mission was to improve the apprehension, prosecution, adjudication, detention, rehabilitation of drug offenders. Okay. The grants of the program were distributed in two parts. There was a block grant that went to, you know, state, mostly uh, state governments. And then there was a discretionary grant for demonstration projects that went to local municipalities or nonprofit organizations. And originally there were around 21 uh, stated purposes for this grant. But what one of the major innovations that came out of this grant were multi-jurisdictional drug task force. By 1991, 904 multi-jurisdictional drug task force were established, and they accounted for over 250,000 arrests. And so these multi-jurisdictional drug task forces are are thought to be the primary intervention of this particular funding, although the funding could be used for a variety of sources. And that funding was in the hundreds of millions of dollars, correct? 
Yes, it was. Is that a lot? It's. I mean, it, it sounds like a lot. A hundred million sounds like a big number, but but is that a lot relative to existing state and local police budgets? Yeah. So so roughly one hundred eighty million of the program was as roughly one hundred eighty million was initially what was funded through the program, and by nineteen ninety five, it did reach five hundred million. Okay. And so we investigated the discretionary portion of this grant, which is even smaller as most funding went to the block grant. Over time, spending on police as a share of state and local direct expenditures has hovered close to about 4%. So this program, especially the discretionary portion, isn't actually necessarily a small share of the police spending. Police receive other federal aid from other programs as well as funding from state and local governments. In our sample, the average okay. funding size was approximately 500000 and roughly 40% were treated in any given year. However, uh, we do know from prior studies that police are responsive to the incentives of these programs. And so I think that's one of the key takeaways to look at is um, that even uh, with a small amount of money, you know, you can change the incentive structure for policing. Yeah. And so speaking of that incentive structure, what do we know about uh, how the money was spent and what were the you know what were the official rules for how that money could be spent and then what do you actually see the police department spending that money on I actually think I jumped ahead a little bit on the other question but you know again there were 21 stated purposes that law enforcement could use this funding for and the task forces were a big one the task forces, the multi-jurisdictional drug task forces were a big one. Right. By 1991, they had a, 904 of these task forces were established. And that involved hiring new police officers. Right. So one of the purposes could be to hire new police officers. Another was to improve uh communication and, and relationships between various levels of law enforcement as well. And so I think that's where you see these multi-jurisdictional drug task forces coming out of that. In addition, the way some cities chose to, there was funding for uh, prosecution, and there was also funding for other type of technological innovations, for example, in drug testing. Okay, And so the way some cities chose to use these grants was they they would actually assign a prosecutor to the multi-jurisdictional drug task force or prosecutors might have their own you know sort of drug unit as well so the in the case of of her in texas the the district attorney there was sort of in charge of this multi-jurisdictional drug drug task force and i know we'll talk about that That'll probably come up again a little bit later, but mm -hmm. Hearn, Texas is an example of where we saw some very egregious behavior happening surrounding these multi-jurisdictional drug task force. And so hopefully we'll get a chance to um, dive into that a little bit later. Yeah, absolutely. And as we work our way towards the uh, outcomes, one of the you know intermediate outcomes, you might say, is did we see an immediate increase in the number of officers on the books. Yeah, so there seems to be, our findings suggest that there's an overall increase in police, but the increase was only significant for year two after the initial grant was received. Although there is, 
there does seem to be an increase after the grants in the number of police. Okay. So it took a little while for it to show up, but there did seem to be an increase in the number of police. Yeah. So so by year two, we see that there was an increase about 1.3% above the baseline rate in year two and year three. Okay. And we talked a little bit about the money funded this task force development. It provided some communication and testing improvements. It clearly increased the number of officers a little bit. But what about policing strategies and tactics? Can we talk a little bit more about the, after forming the task force, did anything change about what their objectives were or or how they handled themselves uh, in combating the drug trade? So what I would say is, and this is, again, another reason why we were interested in in conducting this study is that this federal funding sort of a carrot for local policing agencies. And it's really a way to get local law enforcement to focus on um, federal crime control initiatives. And so at, at the time that this was passed, the war on drugs was the major national crime policy, right? And this is the, the GAO actually has stated that the Ed Byrne State and Local Memorial Law Enforcement Assistance Grant Program was the major funder of the war on drugs. And so obviously after this program, we should expect that there was that there would be an increase in drug arrest rates. Right. If this program has any effect on policing behavior and if this program is able to sufficiently incentivize policing agencies to focus on on the war on drugs. And possibly shift focus away from other types of crimes. Right. And so that's some of the sort of theoretical sort of public choice model, if you will, might mm-hmm. say that, you know, this type of grant funding will shift focus away from other crimes towards drug crimes. Whether or not that should be the case or not, you know, that's more normative question, I suppose, and also depending on the social costs of different crimes, et cetera. But for sure, this sort of public choice model would say, yes, that this would shift shift focus away from other crimes. And actually, really what's, I think, inherent in that public choice model is that that there could be perverse incentives caused by funding or providing this type of funding to police agencies. I suppose that if there's racial differences in the types of crimes that are committed, that this change in focus could also contribute to the racial disparities and arrests that you find? Exactly. And that's part of, you know, sort of what we hypothesize as well is that one that providing this type of funding could lead to the exacerbation of racial disparities, which actually were already there in both the treated cities and the control cities in our analysis. Both had um, much higher arrest rates for drug arrest rates for both possession and sales for blacks than they had for whites. Mm-hmm. And so we sort of hypothesize that this type of funding could actually exacerbate this difference. Right. And one last question about the policy itself and the, and the idea of uh, crowding out before we move on is about the funding itself. We said that 
in the grand scheme of things, police departments are getting money from lots of other other places. Was there any concern that this federal money would crowd out or displace money that these police agencies would have gotten anyhow, just from a different source? Yeah. So in some of our supplementary analyses, we find that expenditures did not significantly change after grant receipt, although the trend is increasing. So the, so we do see an increase in expenditures, although it wasn't statistically significant. So therefore, this is suggestive evidence that you know, maybe expenditures increase, but we we cannot say for sure if these grants were truly extra. However, prior studies have found that even when there has been evidence of crowding out these funds, we're still able to alter policing behavior. So we don't believe that the funding has to truly be extra to alter the incentive structure and behavior of local policing. Right. For the reason we just talked about it. Exactly. Even if expenditures stay the same, it's changing what types of crimes you you target. Yes, it's changing the incentive structure for the types of crimes to police, right? Um, it's mm-hmm. placing more weight on drug crimes because that's this was the funding mechanism for Yeah, it's being the rewarded by the public. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. Okay. So this is a really interesting policy. Uh, And you have a very clever way of studying the causal effect of this policy. And you do so at the city level, right? The the funding was administered at the city level. And I think you have about 200 cities in your sample, in your study. Some of them received funding, some did not. What determined which cities received the funding? So, you know, when when we looked at a, a host of uh, various characteristics in terms of trying to understand which cities receive funding. The the only one that was really significant across our models was the number of uh, female-headed households, but we didn't really see any significant differences as it relates to other characteristics. But it wasn't totally random, or it wasn't part of a random experiment. It was not, right. It was not totally random, actually, because we focus on the discretionary grant. Local agencies actually had to apply for these funds, Okay. unlike the case with the block grant. Did anybody apply and get denied? So that we don't see, and we're, we're not able to verify with our data. Okay. All you see is, is what they got. All we see is, is what they have exactly. Gotcha. Okay. So it looks like the cities that got it and the cities that didn't um, are fairly similar, but we're still worried that they might be different in unobservable ways. And so to, to help isolate the causal effect, you use what's known as an event study research design. Do you want to describe that method and sort of intuitively, what, what's the goal of the method? What is it trying to, what problem is it trying to address? Yeah. And actually, you know, let me just step back just for a little bit in terms of the characteristics of the city, because while in our model, we didn't, the logistic regression we ran, we didn't find major differences except for with female-headed households that remain statistically significant. When we look at the descriptive statistics, there are differences between the between the cities. So for example, um, the cities that received the grant were larger. Um, they had mm-hmm. slightly lower median income. They were less educated. There were, um, they had more female head of households. 
they had a high, greater so there's like a, a socioeconomic gradient yeah so so there seems to be this socioeconomic um gradient there they had a higher proportion of blacks of the population in terms of crime rates they had higher crime rates they had slightly more sworn police officers they already they had more drug arrest rates mm-hmm. and this was true for sales and possession already and so those differences would make us nervous about a naive comparison between the the treated and control cities. Exactly. It would make us nervous. Although, interestingly, they had less drug arrest rates for blacks, significantly less. Huh. Okay. Their drug sales arrest rates, when we looked at those by race, they actually had slightly more drug sales arrest rates for whites. So for drug sales. So yeah, so some of these things would would make us a little bit nervous. um, and, And especially given that it isn't random assignment of the treated, we would definitely be nervous about whether or not we're picking up some other characteristic that's driving the result. So we definitely wanted to conduct an analysis that would that would help us to identify that causal relationship. Right. And, and your event study design basically does that, right? Your event study design controls away for those pre-existing differences between the treated and control cities. Yeah, so we use the event study design for a few reasons. We have variation mm-hmm. in location and timing of the grant receipt, which allows us to identify the effect based on a you know, sort of difference and difference approach. However, as you know, the key assumption for identifying the causal effect is that we, we have parallel trends. So between the treat and, and control groups prior to the grant receipt. And so we want that personnel, crime, and arrest rates are evolving similarly over time. And the event study gave us this sort of, it allows us to naturally test to see whether or not um, these parallel trends trend assumptions hold. Given that we are using the timing of grant receipt, it's also important that there is no correlation between changes in pretreatment crime and that the crime rate is not different pretreatment between the treatment and control groups. And so we can look at these, you know, all of these factors with our data and with the event study. And really, we don't find any evidence that there are differences in pretreatment crime rates between the treat and control group, nor do we find evidence that the crime growth rates are correlated with the year of grant receipt. And then, of course, the event study itself allows us to visually graph out and see whether or not there are, and test whether or not there are differences between treatment and control groups prior to receipt of the funding as well. In all those different tests, you basically find that there's no big problems and that even though there are some differences, those differences are, are, are stable over time. And then the model lets you control away for those pre-existing differences. And that leads to the apples to apples to comparison that gets you your uh, causal effect. So yeah, I, was, I, I think it's a, it's a very clever design and a, and a nicely implemented design that I think does the job. It gets the causal effect that we're, that we're interested in. One other question I had about the analysis was, where do you get the data? It, it's a pretty impressive set of data. I assume it comes from some different sources, right? 
Yes, we actually collect data from a number of different sources. So we need data on the number of police, which comes from UCR, the Uniform Crime Reports uh, annual publication. And that's publicly available. Yes, and, and all of the data is publicly available. So we use for the number of police, we use the law enforcement officers killed and assaulted. And which contains monthly counts of the number of civilian and sworn officers as of October 31st of the reporting year. Arrest data by race, we get from the actual uniform crime reports. Arrest by age, sex, and race uh, statistics by way of uh, Kaplan 2018. And then we categorize monthly arrests by sex, race, age, and offense. And we get expenditure data for grants and aid from the Consolidated Federal Funds Report. And so combining the these various different data sources, we created a data set that links federal expenditures on public safety and narcotics control to local crime and arrest rates. We also use the UCR offenses known and clearances by arrest to measure crime rates as well. Okay. It's great that all that data is published, and it's very nice that you're able to, to link it all together to carry out this study. So we have our data, we have our event study model, and we're able to now isolate these causal effects of interests, these effects of the grant money to local police agencies on a variety of outcomes. We already talked about the first outcome, the number of police officers, and, and you find a, a small increase in the number of police officers in the year or two after the the money was received. And then the next big outcome of interest is drug arrests. And let's talk about that a little bit. You differentiate between drug sale and drug possession arrests. Uh, what do you find there? And why is that distinction between seller and possession uh, so important? So we essentially find that when you look overall for drug arrests, there's you see some increase, but it's it's really not significant after the program. And so one of the reasons why that is, is because a large part of drug arrest is drug possession. And okay. so if we don't disaggregate between drug possession and drug sales arrest, then we might just think, okay, so there's no effect on drug arrest. But actually, if the policy is focusing on on sort of drug trafficking, which um, is the way it's described in the policy, which it did, then you, you might think that drug sales is where you might see most of the effect of the program as it relates to drug arrest. And so when we disaggregate by types of drug arrest, again, we see that there's no effect of on drug possession arrest, but we do see that there is a significant increase in drug sales arrest rates. And we see that there's a significant increase in drug sales arrest rates for both black and whites. But the effect was bigger for black defendants? Yes, the effect, even though, as I mentioned earlier, Earlier, there are large racial disparities in drug arrests for both possession and sales um, between mm-hmm. blacks and whites. The effect was much larger for 
drug sales arrests for blacks. And that's going to just drive that existing racial gap even bigger. Exactly. Now, you might think that, you know, if there was no change in drug sales arrest of blacks or if the change was not relatively small when compared to the change in the arrest rate for whites, then we might think that there would be no effect on the racial disparities in, in drug sales arrest, or even that the racial disparity would narrow. But because the effect was so large for the arrest rates for, for the drug sales arrest rates for blacks, we do actually find that the racial disparity does increase after the grant. And the grant had no no racial wording in it. You refer to the grant being race blind in the paper. So why do we think this happened? Do we have any uh, insights into into why the why there was this differential effect by race? Yeah. So we one of the insights that we had was um, again coming back to. The case of Hearn, Texas, and uh, the reason mm-hmm. why this is just such a such an important anecdotal study, I think, to to mention is because we there was investigative reporting that happened um, in Hearn, Texas, and actually throughout Texas, based on what was going on with these multi jurisdictional drug task force, and there are documentaries you could watch about the drug raid that had happened in Texas that sort of led to the ACLU legal complaint against the district attorney there and and others who were in the multi-jurisdictional drug task force due to a sweeping arrest of black individuals in a public housing complex in, I believe the year was 1999. And you know, there's also a movie, American Violet, that you can also watch that talks about this. We'll try to put links to those documentaries and movies uh, up on the podcast website. Yes. And essentially what, you know, interviews with with the locals in Hearn, Texas, and the evidence from the legal complaint suggests is that since the the burn grant was established, there were these drug raids specifically towards the black community in Hearn, Texas. And they targeted the black community. And by 1999, they were just using a very unreliable informant who eventually was lying on the individuals who were being arrested in order to make drug cases. Unfortunately, some people did actually plead because they were keeping them incarcerated and they were, you know, obviously threatening them with with longer prison time and sentences. And actually, some people who weren't involved decide were sentenced to to prison um, because of the sentences that they were faced with, even though they didn't commit the crime, according to their relatives by interviews, etc. And so, and then according to the discovery evidence as well. And so, mm-hmm. there seems to be that at some point you know, that this program did lead to specific targeting within minority communities and in particular Mm -hmm. black communities. And that's just the bias. Is that just bias on the part of the police department? Yeah. So so some research that has been done 
for example, in Seattle on, on this issue has sort of, you know, there's there's a number of explanations that some provide for why you might see racial disparities during that time and, and mm-hmm. drug arrest rates, right? One could be that the structure of the drug market is different between blacks and whites. Blacks might sell drugs out in the open, and so they're easier, they're an easier target. That's one argument. Another argument is that crime rates are just different. And, and so this is just statistical discrimination and that more, more Blacks sell drugs than whites. And so therefore, the numbers are just different. And then you, you have mm-hmm. sort of the third argument about, you know, this targeted policing that might be due to either explicit in the case of Hearn, Texas, it looks like it was very explicit racial animus. But in other places, I think it operates probably in a more implicit manner, where even within the organizational structure of policing agencies, they could be operating on what they believe to be are um, sort of the biases as it relates to crime Mm -hmm. that isn't necessarily playing out, you know, in what's actually happening within their particular jurisdiction. So I mentioned earlier um, the study in Seattle where they did find that these organizational biases, implicit biases at the organizational level and deciding who to target for these drugs and where to target was actually more the issue than sort of the setup of the drug market and, you know, differences in the selling of drugs between you know, black or minority areas and then the, the more white areas, that it's it's really police were choosing to focus in on the black areas. Yeah. And so I think that's a really important point that the paper makes, uh, which you articulated just now very clearly, is that, again, the, the federal policy was was race neutral, but the result was that police departments had agency uh, over what to do with those increased resources, and they acted in a in a racially biased way. Uh, and it sounds like maybe it, this happened for different reasons in different places. But the end result is this um, I- increasing of the of the racial arrest rate gap. So we talked about arrests uh, and drug arrests versus or drug selling versus drug possession arrests. The other outcome you look at in the paper is crime, and once again you distinguish between types of crime, you look at property crime and violent crime. And what do you find there? And again, why is it important to separate out different types of crime? Yes. So we find evidence of a decrease in overall property crime with no changes in total violent crime. However, we do see that robbery, which is a a violent crime, sort of of an economic nature, does significantly decrease after implementation of the program or after receipt of of grant funding. Moreover, among the property crimes, we only find a decrease in burglary and larceny. The program at one point had a focus on auto theft, but we found no impact on auto thefts of the program. Eventually, property crime did become one of the program purposes for the burn program which may be why there is a lag in the significant decrease in property crime rates after receipt of the initial grant because it didn't become part of 
the stated purposes until later. However, I do want to I, I do want to sort of caution our results that that just because they're the causal evidence isn't um, quite as strong in this case because we do have a few differences in these property crime rates prior to prior to grant receipt. So we just want to caution our results there a little bit when interpreting these results, given the presence of the significant pre-trends for some years for motor, motor vehicle theft, in particular in burglary. But we also do find evidence that the total property arrest rate is decreasing, suggesting that the impact of the program on property crime could be a secondary effect um, stemming from an increase in the arrest rate for drug offenses as well. Okay. So you think that the changes in crime are, are sort of indirect effects of the uh, drug arrests? Yeah. So we sort of think that they could be, and, and especially given, you know, uh, when you think about it, where we're sort of finding the impact of this program are in these economic crimes, right? Um, and so drug sales is an economic crime. These uh, property crime is an economic crime. So we do think that it could be sort of the secondary effect. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's really interesting. Okay, so we've seen that the policy had effects on a variety of things. It, it affected arrest rates at different levels for different races, and it, and it exacerbated the racial gap in, in drug arrests. Uh, it increased the number of police on the streets. It probably had some effects on crime that are a little bit less clear, I guess it sounds like. And so what do we take away from all this? What, uh, what advice do you have for local police agencies or, or what lessons should they learn from this in terms of uh, spending federal funds and, and deciding how to use those funds and maybe avoiding the uh, racial disparities that, that you see in this paper? So there um, are a number of things I think we could take away from our study. The first is, although, as you mentioned previously, the Burn Grant Program was a colorblind policy initiative. It was not race neutral in its implementation. And this led to sharp increases in the black drug sales arrest rate and increases in racial disparities in drug sales arrest after the receipt of the grant. However, because the program encouraged state and local agencies to shift their focus to crimes with historically high black arrest rates, such as drugs, there was also an expansion of arrests for whites who participated in these crimes. Second, the effective, effective criminal justice reform should not only consider addressing state and local policies that have driven the criminal justice system's expansion, but also federal policies aimed at altering the behavior of state and local authorities to support national crime control policies. You know, and specifically when we think about the lessons for local agencies themselves, we think they need to be aware of how funding may alter their officers' behaviors and take measures to ensure that they don't exacerbate racial disparities in historically marginalized communities. You know, at the local agency level, managers, police managers should be aware that there may be selective enforcement of laws that are not necessarily justified on the grounds of efficiency, but that may be driven by historical stereotypes. 
and that these biases, they color who we see as perpetrators and these funding mechanisms could actually exacerbate these particular biases leading to a disproportionate burden of the cost of the policies in marginalized communities. Um, So we need to be aware of that as well. So I think, you know, there's things we need to think about at the policy level, at sort of the very macro policy level, when you think about, you know, how intergovernmental grant programs might impact the incentive structure and behaviors of local agencies and how the federal how federal policy might impact those behaviors. But then um, at a more local level, I think understanding how your agent how those agencies might respond to these federal dollars and is there any reason to believe that there may be some sort of racial bias in the implementation mm-hmm. I totally agree and I think you summarize the lessons very well there well thanks again for taking the time to talk to us today about your paper Our guest today has been Dr. Robin Cox, assistant professor in the USC Suzanne Dvorak Peck School of Social Work. Her paper on the impact of federal funds to local police agencies on policing and crime outcomes, again, is forthcoming in JPAM, and a link to the paper is available on the podcast website. Uh, So thanks again for taking the time to talk to us about your paper today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it was a pleasure. And thanks to our listeners as well for joining us. Until next time, this is your host, Seth Gershenson of American University. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of JPAM, the Journal of Policy Analysis and Management, in conjunction with American University's School of Public Affairs. Please follow us on the APAM website and search for the JPAM podcast.